Well, what's happening, Redemption Church? So good to be with you guys this morning. Hi to everybody online. Of course, we have everybody who is here live with us, and today is going to be a rager. All right, so as we get underway, though, we want to pray because, boy, if there's anything that we need to pray about, it's actually going to be the topic that I will reveal in just a minute to you. Uh, we all need prayer because we need strength to do this thing because all this stuff is crazy stuff, and uh, we need Jesus to help us do the crazy things in life. So if you would pray with me right now, that'd be awesome, and we're going to jump right to it. So Jesus, uh, I sincerely want to slow the pace for just a minute and appeal to you to appeal to our hearts to love what you love. Because as I think about this whole series, that's really probably what it comes down to. We have to have a tenacious love for what you love, and that's something you have to graft into us. That's something that you have to stimulate our minds and our hearts to desire. We have to really believe you, not simply believe in you, but believe what you say, believe what you desire for our lives, believe that it really does pay off, and that from that there is joy, and there is peace, and there is the fulfillment of life that you promise. And so I pray that you will do that work in us, and not just today, but obviously as life continues to move forward, uh, we will have just a, a passion, a hunger, a need, a humility to seek your wisdom, and from that to seek your life overlaid in our lives so that we live you out. And so Jesus, we thank you, we love you, we need you, and we praise you in your good and kind name. Amen. So first of all, I want to start off with, I want you to give a big hand to our man right now, Scott Thompson. I want you to clap for Scott Thompson. Because, because he, he's hopefully watching right now. He's actually uh, under the weather and, and so very sad for that. But he did a phenomenal job last week looking at crazy things that Christians should do, such as rebel and go to church more often than the lunar cycle. That was a great title. So uh, we like that. And he did a great job. And here's what was great about it. He reminds us of the importance, not simply of showing up here or showing up online and, and attending church, but rather, what he was trying to push was this idea that we are to be the church together, that we are to be this integrated context, this body of people that gather together. We're a carburetor, apparently, for Jesus. And, and with that, it means we all need one another. And we need one another because if we're honest, life is hard, man. Life is hard, and you need people of like-mindedness that make much of Jesus to help you in that context of life. And so he did a great job of just looking at how we need to do life together, because life is best lived with one another. It's best lived in the context of community. But at the end of his message, he started to hint at this direction that's very much about today. And he talked about this idea out of Proverbs of iron sharpening iron, and that creates sparks. Or, or even his passage out of Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about stirring one another up to love and good deeds. And if you go back and look at the original language that the New Testament was written in, the Greek language, that word stir up, or that little phrase, is one word, and it means to agitate, which sounds so fun. Right? But there's this idea in there that I, I, I think we sometimes forget with the church that I think is really valuable. And the idea is that while you can pick your friends, you don't get your pick, pick your family, right? And the same is true with the church. We don't always get to pick our family that is the church. And believe it or not, in the context of our Christian faith, the church, there are some people that are difficult, 
There are some people you're not going to agree with. There's some people that might wound you at times, and that's some of the stuff that Scott started to get into. There's some people that you go, they just kind of bother me, they bug me, we don't see the, the world the same way, we don't agree on how things should be done, we don't agree on politics, we don't agree on, on just certain philosophies, whatever it is. There's just some people that are just kind of like, oh, they drive me crazy, whatever you might sense. Maybe you're an introvert and you're like, it's not a particular kind of person. It's just all people because I'm an introvert, right? All of that is in there. And yet I believe that the very reason that Jesus brings us together in this wide range diversity, some of which you find easy to connect with and some of which you find hard, is because he's, he's growing you. And where he most grows us is in the tough stuff, right? Like, like if he just let it all be easy for us, I don't think we would grow. We would be informed, enlightened, but I don't know if we'd really grow because the growth happens not when things are easy, but when things are hard. And I find often the place that we most grow to be like Jesus is not with the people that we most connect with, find ourselves in, in, in kind of easy union with, but it's actually with the people that bother us, bug us, bum us out. That's the place where we have to lean into being most like Jesus. And so today, as we're continuing the series on crazy stuff that Christians should do, today is big, today is crazy, as the great social commentator Ozzy Osbourne said, we are going off the rails on a crazy train, all right? Because the topic of the day is this, ready? <gasps> Hang with people who bug the hell out of you. Now, I was a little nervous about the title because I'm like, do I really want to say bug in church, right? <laughs> and, and so I was just like, ah, but I decided, ah, what the bug, I'll go with it. So, uh, you know, we're doing this, and at first you go like, ah, come on, Matt, why, why are you doing this? Are you just trying to be edgy? No, I'm actually going to push a theological and biblical truth that from that we can kind of this, like press out of this and, and realize how we can do some crazy stuff and to live in a certain way that most reflects Jesus. So if you are following along in our app, our app has some notes, and we have a number of notes today. So we're going all over the place. We're hitting a lot of topics under this heading because I want you to see the, the, the theological relevance and then the practical application and why we want to pray like, Jesus, help me to be more of what you want me to be, even if that means I have to hang with people who bug the hell out of me. So we start with number one in your notes, and that's the problem. And the problem is that each of us has the potential to be one hell of a person. We all do, right? In fact, I didn't say this, but James, who was the little brother of Jesus, he talks about this in his little five-chapter letter that he writes to a group of Christians scattered all over the place. He says this in James chapter three. He says, indeed, we all make many mistakes. Amen? Amen. Yeah, we do. We all make mistakes. But if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. And I go, amen, brother, for sure. He says, among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire and it is set on fire by hell itself. See, 
oftentimes when we think of hell in biblical context or in the church setting, we think it's an afterlife concept. It's just something for the after this whole world kind of thing. But, but when you read the Bible, you see that there are elements where it's the here and the now, that there's something that hell does in our personal space in the present. And that's what James is saying right here. He's saying in the here and now, there is this reality that hell gets lit in us. That its effects, its attitudes, its disposition kind of presses itself into our life. It wells up within us and it pushes out, particularly when we are frustrated at others. That's where hell wants to escape in our words. It escapes in our shortness or our curt attitudes our cut-downs or name-calling, the snarky things we like to post on social media or say to our friends that are in our in-group and disagree with the out-group. It's those inner negative views that we hold toward other people. Maybe we don't say them, but we, we have them and we recycle them and we keep talking about those people in our minds in negative ways or maybe it's just our outward impatience, the use of intimidation, belittling, dress-downs, mockery, gaslighting, criticism. The list could go on and on and on. All of these things are this idea of our hellish potential, our attitudes and our words being lit on fire by hell. But see, even this drives a little deeper because the words that we share, the words that we think, they don't emanate from just general space. They come from a deeper part of our person. They come from this thing we call the heart, and it comes from our mind and where we've set things historically. It kind of drives where we are presently. And again, I didn't say this, and James didn't even say this, but rather James's big brother, Jesus, he says this. He says this in the simple statement, where he says in Matthew chapter 15, a tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. But if a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. And then he says to the religious leaders, you guys are brood of snakes. He says, how can you being evil men speak what is good and right for whatever is in your heart? That is what determines what you say. Right, so he's, he's getting our attention that those things we think of other people, those people we are bothered by or disagree with or are frustrated by, whatever else it goes, man, those words that get formed and some of those words that you share are really generated from something deep in your interior. So then he says in verse 35, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or they will condemn you. Now, I know that's sobering, and I think in some ways we're even tempted to excuse ourselves, like, well, I don't have an evil heart. I don't say evil things. But Jesus is just trying to give this really stern juxtaposition, black and whiteness, to get us to think, to pause, and to be like, man, maybe I do that more often than I want, and the problem is not simply my words, but the heart and mind that generates the words that I say and think. Because what we think of others, what we say about others, what we say to others— it's really not a problem of vocabulary. It really is a problem of disposition, of our inner 
person. And so this is why I say we all have the propensity to be one hell of a person, right? Because hell wants to exert itself through our lives toward other people and what we do, what we say, and how we think. And so when you really start to think about that, you go, okay, so what is it that I say uh, in my own thinking? Or what is it I say to the people that I find safe, to my spouse or my kids or my closest friend or whatever else that may be negative, critical, bitey, whatever? Like, like what does that reveal about me? Well, I, I, I think what it does for all of us, myself included, because trust me, I say plenty of terrible things about people. What it reveals to me is a snapshot of what I really am inside. A snapshot of where I still really need to grow. Right? And that's what Jesus is just trying to tell us. Like, hey man, this is a chance for you to grow, do better, to take an honest assessment and figure out what it is you need to still address to be more like me. That's the spirit of the whole thing. Because here's the deal, a good statement here. Our words and actions, internal and external, give us the GPS location of our heart's condition. Right? So we don't have to wonder where our heart is. Just look at what you think, what you say. Right? As soon as you do that, you go like, okay, I got a sense of what I still need to do. Because if we distill all of this down and we try to understand what the real disposition is that we may deal with on having this kind of hellish interior at times, or a hell that we're still trying to extinguish in our lives, it's this central idea, the hell-bent heart has you, or has myself, on the throne of life, right? The hell-bent heart ultimately says, I'm coming first. So it's me before we, it's my before our, it's I before others, it's self-love before selfless love. That's all it really comes down to, right? When there's people in my life that are bumming me out, bugging me, just downright just getting my ire going, it's because they're somehow messing with my perfect little quaint life. They're messing with my vision for a better world. And therefore, I'm bugged, I'm offended, I'm mad. And hell just starts stoking up, right? But Jesus wants to address that. He wants to fix that. He wants to press that out of us. In fact, in John chapter 15, he speaks about this. And in this, he gives us both the will that God has for us, and he gives us a promise that God makes in relationship to fulfilling the will God has for us. And it's this whole thing to drive our hell-bentness out. It's like treating our hell-bentness like a demon that he wants to drive away, all right? So in John chapter 15, starting in verse 9, he says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. So remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments, and I remain in his love. And so we go, okay, I want to remain in your love. I want to obey your commandments. What are the commandments that I need to obey to remain in your love and have the benefit that you're giving me? Verse 11, he says, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. From this, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay one's life down for one's friends. And so if you notice there, the radical promise is you will be filled with my joy. 
Yes, your joy will overflow. It's not a maybe. It's a guarantee. But notice he links it to radical love then. If you want to experience radical joy, you have to then exhibit radical love. You have to get in touch with what it means to truly, deeply, and powerfully love the people around you, the easy to love and the tough to love. And if you do that, man, you're going to be much more joyful. And I was thinking about this, right? Because the opposite is also true. If the words of your mind toward the people that bother you are constantly spinning in your head, do you have joy? Now you're put out, you're frustrated, life sucks, man. People are dumb, I'm done with the human race, let's just punch out. You know, there's all these attitudes that we can have that are negative when we focus words in our mind against people that bother us. But if we learn to love, we will have joy. And and, and notice what Jesus says in this. He says, loving in the same way that I have loved you. So when we pose the question, well, what does it mean that we're supposed to love people like this? What's Jesus expect from us? Here's what's great. It's a reflective idea. So if I was to ask you, well, what are the ways that you think Jesus has loved you? What do you think his disposition is toward you? I mean, he sees your whole life perfectly in every way. So he sees your messes. He sees your fears. He sees your frustrations. He sees your failures. In the midst of all of that, do you think he still loves you? Is invested into you? Wants the best for you? Right? Wants to actually see you grow and succeed even though you're painfully human? If you say, well, yeah, that's the way he loves me. He goes, awesome. Then go duplicate that to others. And their failures, their foibles, their problems, their fears, their weakness. Right? That's how you begin to deal with the hellishness of your soul. You love like Jesus, right? And when he says here, laying your life down for your friends, we tend to think, oh, so I I have to be willing to die, right? And and while there's certainly something to that, maybe in some ways, it's interesting, uh, later, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, writes this little letter, and he kind of quotes Jesus there. But then he grounds it in everyday practicalities. Like, there's no greater love than you lay your life down for your friends. By that, he means caring for those when they're having a bad day. Caring for those who are in financial need. Making an investment in somebody else that maybe is tough to make an investment in. So in other words, this idea of laying our lives down is this idea of saying, it's not me first. My self-love first. It's love for others that I need to work on to make sure that I make this place a better world, which is what Jesus wants me to do. It's to advance kingdom love in a loveless context. And so the question we want to ask ourselves is this. Is my heart creating words and actions that show the kingdom love of heaven or the self-entitled attitudes of hell? Like, Like, what do I struggle with the most? Am I compassionate or critical? Am I caring or frustrated? Do I like some and really dislike others? See, this is what Jesus challenges us all to. And if we're honest, we all have groups that we go, they bug me. These ones I dig, these ones I don't. Right? But, but he wants us to be more like him, and he wants us to grow, and he wants us to, to really exercise kingdom values more than moral umbrage and frustration. That's what he's all about. 
In fact, in the memoirs of Jesus, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's really what those are in a lot of ways, he, he constantly pits kingdom versus hell. Right? Like, kingdom is one set of values, and hell is another set of values. Kingdom is about selfless love, but, but hell is about self-love. You see this juxtaposition when Jesus addresses religion, and he says to them in Matthew 23, he says, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven, right, in people's faces. Just you slam the door of the kingdom of heaven. But then you go all over the place. You just crisscross the globe to find one convert and you turn that person into twice the child of hell as yourselves. See the juxtaposition between kingdom and heaven? And it's in this world. It's not the afterlife. It's in this world. Right? There's two different dispositions in play. And for religion, it was real simple. If you were the right kind of person, if you were the uh, okay on the list of okay people, if you saw the world their way, hey man, that was great. But if you were an outsider, you were unwanted, unloved, undesired, different, whatever it was, then you were a problem and the door was slammed in your face. And it's interesting because later in John chapter 8, Jesus will be dealing with the religious leaders again. And he'll tell them, he'll say, you know, here's the issue. The core of your problem, you guys, is that you are like Satan's kids. And that sounds brutal because they're religious. They love the Bible. They do the law, all this stuff. And you go, well, how are they Satan's kids? Well, the name Satan means accuser. That's all it really means. And in this where accusing really comes forth is when you are critical of others, you're condemning of others, what you're saying is, I'm better than you. I've got it solved, you don't. I'm further down the road of responsibility in life and you're not. And that's all Satan does. Satan just goes before God and says, you know what, look at Matt Boswell. That dude's failed you many times. That guy is so inconsistent. That guy talks about love, but then he's a jerk to people sometimes. Like, look at him, right? That's what Satan loves to do is accuse and say, see, those people are not as good. And anytime religion, anytime we, whatever else, we're just kind of condemning, accusing, critical. I don't mean like you can be, you, you can certainly be thoughtfully critical. Like you're not trying to get at the person. You're just trying to analyze the problem. That's fine. But when it's kind of personalized, and that's the stuff religion would do. That's the stuff the sons of the devil would do. That's the stuff that Satan does. That's the stuff that hell unleashes. All those things are the problem. In fact, if anything, a hell-bent disposition harms our kingdom mission. A hell-bent disposition harms our kingdom mission. And, and I'm talking about this in part just for a moment of candor. You know, I, I've watched over the course of years being in this Christian makeup in this evangelical church or whatever else, and, and I see how often it's tragic that our words aren't reaching, but our words are condemning. Our words aren't sharing Christ. Our words are more critical. We get caught up in all these weird culture wars at the cost of missional living, and, and this is where I go, man, we, we have to retailer and re-see the world in a different way. We need to see the world through the eyes of Jesus, where he's like, God, I want to go. You got to send me, Dad, because I love them so much, and you love them so much. They need rescue. Like, that's the heart of Christ, and that should be the heart of the church because that is the heart of the kingdom. And so what that means is we need the kingdom really laid in our hearts, and so that takes us to number two in your notes. Only a kingdom focus can crash through a hell-bent nature. 
that's the only thing that will bring real transformation. In fact, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 16. He talks about kind of the power of kingdom stuff that kind of undoes our hellish type stuff. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. So there's this conversation. Peter said something dumb and now he's saying something smart and Jesus is saying what the real heart of everything is. He says, all right, you're Peter. And I'm telling you, man, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you what? The keys of the kingdom, right? The kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the key here literally is the keys of the kingdom. He says the keys are what deals with the lock on the gates of hell. Now, that's a very simple metaphor. But what he's getting at is when you do kingdom stuff, it unlocks the hellish stuff. When you do kingdom stuff, it crashes the the gates of hellish stuff. That's what we want to be about. Only a kingdom focus can crash our hellish gates, right? So we go, great, how do we do this? Well, it's number three in your notes. Do kingdom stuff that bugs the hell out of you then, right? Because that's the job. We're trying to literally drive this thing out. We're trying to see it flushed out of our lives. And so I'm going to give you four sections of the Bible today. I'm going to try to move these fast, but they're honestly, I I, I go, if we do these four, you've got about 90% of it handled. Like these four do the heavy lifting as far as what we're to be like in the world, how we're to conduct ourselves, how we're to integrate and respond and have attitudes, everything else. You do these four, you're going to be nailing it, man, right? This is the kingdom stuff that displaces the heli stuff. And yes, heli's a word. All right, so first thing here, doing the Sermon on the Mount and the plane will bug the hell out of you. It will work. Now, anybody who knows me knows that I'm like OCD for the Sermon on the Mountain plane. Like, like honestly, I go, this, man, this is it. Because like when Jesus rolls in, he's like, everything you guys have known, I'm changing it up. And this is the marching orders. And so when you read Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, Luke chapter six, it's literally like a new law to a, from a new Moses to a new Israel. It's just now the church. This is what we do. This is how we live. This is how we focus. Everything is upside down. It's backwards. It's not like the way the world does it. And that's how you change the world. That's the Sermon on the Mount. But here's the thing about this. It's not the sermons on the mount. It's one sermon. I say that is because sometimes when we read it, we treat it like Jesus' Twitter feed. You know, like, oh, he had this statement and that statement and that statement and all these bumper stickers. There's like a wall of bumper stickers. I love the Sermon on the Mount. There's so many good little ideas in there. And Jesus is like, no, you don't get it. It starts with a singular idea. It's a single sermon. All these moving parts that lead to a conclusion. Right? And, and, and so I want to capture this because I think things get lost when we don't see it as a cohesive sermon. So um, if I take you not to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, but I take you to the end, in most Bibles what you will find are these little section headings, right? The golden rule, and then there's after that the difficult way, and I think we have those slides right there. And that's all great. I like headings, but sometimes they disrupt the pattern because what we think is, oh, he talks about like ask, seek, and knock, and then stop idea. And then he talks about the golden rule and then stop the idea. And then he talks about the difficult way that's narrow and hard and then stop the idea. That's not it. In fact, it's cohesive. So Jesus teaches this entire sermon for two and a half chapters. And then he says, all right, I said a lot of stuff, but let me simplify it for you. And Carla, go to that next slide. Here's how he simplifies it. 
Do unto others what you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. That giant chunk at the front of your Bible, Jesus does you a huge favor in like a sentence plus. He says, just if you do this, you nailed it. You nailed it. But here's the thing. He doesn't say, and stop, next topic. What he says is there, do unto others whatever you'd like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The gateway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for those who choose it. And many are going to do it and go that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Too often we as Christians read that and we go, oh, well, that's the gospel. It's hard to follow Jesus. Many don't want to follow him. And I go, right, from a certain point of view. But here's what's more important. He said, he's already saying, everything I've just taught you through this entire sermon really capstones in this idea that you really invest into others as you want them to do that to you. And that, my friends, is a hard and narrow way. See, they're not, it's not a different topic. It's the same topic. He's saying, if you really want to take me seriously, if you really want to take the, the message of the Sermon on the Mount seriously, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. If you really want to treat all people in the same way you want to be treated. That's going to be hard. It's much easier to say, these are the people I like. I'll treat them that way. These are the people I don't like. I'm not going to treat them that way. And Jesus is like, right, but that's not what the sermon's about. The sermon is literally about you want to do this thing to all people and you want to pursue it in earnestness. See, if we put this in the form of a graphic, here's what it means. Denying the Sermon on the Mount is a wide way. And frankly, defending the Sermon on the Mount. It's also a wide way. Because Jesus' point is the narrow way is doing the Sermon on the Mount. If I just want to sit around and have a Bible study about the Sermon on the Mount, I want to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, I want to talk with my friends about the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't do the Sermon on the Mount, then I'm not really choosing the narrow way. I'm just saying I like the ideas, but man, I don't want to actually have to engage in the real work of doing this Thing. But Jesus is challenging us through these chapters. And he's saying the distinctive difference is the one that does them. So he closes then the entire sermon with three illustrations. He says, golden rule, golden rule, which is connected to the entire sermon, is hard and difficult, but it's those who do it that matters. That's why he says in these three stories, you can identify a tree by its fruit, right? You can identify the people by their, their actions, because it's actually those who do the will of my Father. And if anyone listens and follows, they're the ones that are firm. So three times he says, it's really about doing. It's really about engaging. It's really about functioning. And so I'm convinced, I'm committed that the Sermon on the Mount changes the world. I really am. And I do think that's hard because the Sermon on the Mount outlines things that are really backwards to the way the world does things. But the world will only be changed if we do this. Joy for us is only unlocked if we really do this. Our temptation to be little hellboys and hellgirls is driven out only if we do this. But doing it is going to be hard. It is, because it's so different. Chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount starts off with the Beatitudes. You know what it celebrates? It doesn't celebrate people who are powerful and strong. It celebrates the meek. It doesn't celebrate the people who can stand up and fight. It celebrates the people who are peacemakers. 
right? It, it actually says you want to know, if, if anything, when you are, are, are posed and disrupted and persecuted, man, high fives, fist bumps, leap for joy. That's backwards. Talks about displaying a good witness and true justness and avoiding anger. Remember, he says there, if you hate your brother, you're in danger of, again, hellishness again. He says, if anything, when somebody wrongs you, go reconcile with them. Go make it right. And he just continues on with this kind of idea, right? Keeping your word, not retaliating, but giving up to gain a person. Loving, do good, uh, you know, bless those who hate you, who want your demise. I mean, that's crazy stuff, but this is the stuff that drives out our hellishness. Chapter six, he says, give to those who are in need. And he says, and, and pray and fast, and even in the prayer, right? The prayer is forgive us our debts as we forgive others, right? Talks about trusting God, giving your money, don't worry, seek the kingdom as righteousness. Chapter seven, don't judge, but rather be wise. Ask for big stuff, treat others like you want to be treated, even though it's in tough, narrow, difficult way, right? This is the stuff that will bug the hell out of you sometimes. Some of this bugs the hell out of me, and that's good. That's good. If you lean into it and let it do what it's supposed to do, it will refine you. Refining's not fun. We'll see that in a minute, but it will refine you. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Seeking the fruit of the Spirit will bug the hell out of you. Right? I said there's four chunks of Scripture that really make me tick nowadays. Galatians chapter 5 says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, see, there's no law. Right? Just, just think about that list. Right? In the world that we live in, think how important it is that we are patient. Like, but there's all these cargo ships, and there's nothing getting moved around, and I can't get all my Thanksgiving stuff. Right? Patience kindness when people just want to be bitey and snarky goodness faithfulness gentleness oh so good so good right really pursuing these it's going to drive that hell bentness right out of us the third one oh this one's tough living the definition of love will bug the hell out of you Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, and it's amazing. He starts it off by saying, if you don't have love, epic fail. Like, if you don't have love, but you have good doctrine, and you have great morals, and all this stuff, but you don't have love, you got zero. Like, he really pounds this one hard, right? And then he gives us the definition of love, and it's very basic. Love is patient and kind, Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. So valuable. My way, my rights, my freedoms, my what it doesn't demand its own way. It wants something for somebody else more than it wants something for oneself. I want my happiness, my joy, my fulfillment. No, that's not love. Love is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice when injustice takes place, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Again, if we just said, man, I'm going to take that seriously, and I'm going to take the fruit of the Spirit seriously, and I'm going to take the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain seriously, that's powerful. That's world-changing stuff. 
But then fourth, putting on Christ's character will bug the hell out of you. Right? Because where Jesus is, there is no hell. Right? So, I read this a couple of weeks ago, but I bring it back to us again. Colossians chapter 3. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. That's the goal, right? He says, since God has chosen you to be holy people, he loves you, must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Do you notice certain words just keep coming up and ticking you off as you see them? Make allowance for each other's faults. Your kids, your spouse, your friends, people not your friends, people who drive you nuts. Forgive anyone who offends you. Why? Why do I have to do that? Well, remember the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive others. Above all else, close yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you're called to live in peace and to always be thankful. See, in my life, probably more than ever the last couple of years, I've said these are the only four things that I really need to try to master. Right? I don't need more biblical study. I don't need more theology. I really don't. What I need to do is say, hey, these four things change the world, and these, things, these four things change my life. And by changing my life, it changes the world. I need to do these four things. Right? I need to let this stuff bug the hell out of me. But here's the key in all of this, this fifth thing. All of those things require you doing them toward others, especially those who bug the hell out of you. Right? It's easy, again, like I said, to do this with people we dig, we connect with, are easily made as friends. It's easy. But, but here, Jesus calls us to do things toward enemies, toward people who cheat us, who people, toward people who don't always like us or approve of us or want our best. He's like, right, that's the hard stuff I'm asking you to do because that's the hard stuff that changes the world. Now, I'm not saying that it means you don't have boundaries in life. You can have boundaries with certain people because you go, they're really toxic and they're really dangerous and they're really harmful to my life. And I go, it's totally awesome to have boundaries. Ready? But not boundaries with bitterness. That's not healthy. You can have a boundary, but if it's out of bitterness, that's an unhealthy boundary. And part of why this is important to me is for a number of years now, people have been writing about this idea called the great sort. The great sort is the dividing up of our culture. Right? And, and, and that's really accelerated in the last couple of years. And some are moving because of jobs, which is totally fine. That's part of the sort. Some people are like, hey, I have the freedom now to work from home so I can live anywhere. So I'm going to move toward friends and family. That's awesome. That's totally cool too. But there's this other part that I've heard from people at different times in different ways. And they're like, you know what? I'm just really sick and tired of all of these liberals around me. And I'm moving to a conservative place. And in the reverse, I have friends like in Texas and stuff, they're like, I'm so sick and tired of this crazy red state, I'm leaving and I'm going to the liberal promised land. And here's the problem. You're going because you're, 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 you're sick, fed up, tired of, done with those others. And I just want my own people. Because you know what? My own, I don't have to work that hard to love. But the other, you know, like the kind that Jesus came for, that requires something altogether different in us. And though this is, this is why I believe that not only do we need to hang with people, we need to hang with kinds of people that really, really bug us sometimes. It's even for me, like in areas like social media, I don't unfriend or block people that might drive me a bit crazy. No, I intentionally keep them around because it tests me. Like, all right, Matt, are you complaining about these people or are you praying for these people? You loving these people or are you just irritated to these people? It's a great test. Not pleasant, not fun, 
but it's a great test. And I say not pleasant and not fun because of this. It's the final thing. Jesus calls us to all of this because he loves you enough to bug the hell out of you. He loves you enough to do that. The Bible calls this discipline. Now, I thought about titling this beat out of you, but then I thought, nah, it's too far. So, but he'll bug it out of you, right? Now, typically when we think of the word discipline, we think about getting in trouble. But actually, what the Bible's trying to get at is to make you stronger and better and more Jesus-like. So, in the book of Hebrews, this letter that was written kind of a little later in the creation of the New Testament, the writer says this, Have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. Yeah. Yeah, getting the hell bugged out of you is painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Now, typically, we read this and go, right, yeah, God disciplines those who are in sin and doing stupid stuff, and he loves you enough to spank you, and okay, I got it. But, but that will lose the context and the corrective here. For no sooner does he talk about this idea of discipline making us better, stronger, healthier, he immediately says this, work at living in peace with everyone. And work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of, your, none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up and troubles you, corrupting many. See, the context is God loves you enough to discipline you, to strengthen you, to refine you, to drive the hellishness from you, to be selfless and invested in others so that you pursue peace, so that you live holiness. Again, holiness, our definition here is love displayed in mercy and justness, and that you avoid bitterness. So he disciplines us for the very thing we've been talking about all morning, right? Not just simply because I did a personal sinful thing. No, he's like, no, I want you to get better at peace, at love, at patience, and investment in, in joy that comes through loving others because the more we lean into that and do that the more he is bugging the hell out of us let's go ahead and pray together jesus again i thank you for hard lessons is this was coming together for me this week i was just again just reconfronted by the fact that there is a swath of society there is a swath of people there is a swath of attitudes that i have a sour attitude regarding and that I'm far too comfortable being okay in my little hellishness sometimes. And it's not what you want for me, and it's not what you want for the world, and you want us to be like you. So help us with this, because some of us are really angry at some people. Some of us are really frustrated by things. Some of us are really soured and bitter by circumstance or issues or whatever, and we're playing a lot of really unhealthy words in our head, stemming from maybe some unhealthiness in our heart, and we need you to do the surgery. And we know part of that comes because we're willing to do because you've done for us. But help us to do. Give us the heart to do, the longing to do, and the want to do. So Jesus, we look to you and we need you in your good name.